If you are listening to this, you've made it this far. Congratulations. This is shaping up to be a weird year. And hopefully you found a couple of horror podcasts, ourselves included, that are uh, that are helping you bridge that gap, you know, helping you make the adjustment to getting life back to normal. I am Matt Monagle. I am one half of your Matt host on Certified Forgotten. We remain the only horror podcast that reviews films with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's kind of our whole thing. It's copyrighted. Don't steal it. And I am joined as I am every other week by my buddy, my partner in crime, and uh, the only Matt with just glorious, luscious locks of hair. It's Matt Donato. How you doing, bud? Pretty good. The glorious locks are, uh, they, they do look especially nice today. I, I don't know why, and I don't know what I'm doing differently other than uh, not getting them cut still. So we're going to ride this wave. And I say wave because now my hair is going wavy at the bottom. It's This is a new thing. This is fun. At what point do you consider getting that post-COVID haircut? Or are you just, are you, is this it? Is this your look for the foreseeable future? I'm going to get a cut eventually. The Los Angeles summer will not permit this long hair for me much longer. Mm. But I'm just too curious now to see what will keep happening. This is by far the mm-hmm. longest it's ever been. Uh, if anyone wants to see my hair, I'll post a picture on Twitter or something. I don't know. Whatever. Go find me somewhere. Sure. That seems like a thing people will want. Yeah, of course. You want those headshots of Donato eating pizza with long hair. In any case, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. So I'm just going to keep riding after a little bit more until pretty much I'm forced to because there's just a sloppy, sweaty mess when I go running or something and I just can't handle it one day. Well, you know, in times of great uncertainty, there's comfort in going to the things we know. And what I know is that we have an awesome guest this week. Did you see how I landed that? That was Your like incredible. Impeccable. Fucking, fucking landed. Impeccable. Donato, will you do, do the honors of introducing this week's guest, please? I will do what I always do because this is what I do. And this week we have, it, it is a reciprocal guest in a way because I have just been lucky enough to go on their podcast, The Pod and the Pendulum. And I talked about Evil Dead a little bit if you went and listened to it. If you don't want to read my article, I just wrote on Bloody about why Evil Dead is the best remake out there possibly you can listen to me talk about it with mr mike snoonian who also before i before i let them say hello also has another podcast called psychoanalysis a harbor horror therapy a harbor therapy it's it is a harbor adjacent podcast no psychoanalysis a horror therapy podcast and they are also a telluride horror show host and programmer mike i got through it all somehow welcome i know wow that is like the best intro I've ever gotten in anything. So thank you. That is just wonderful. It's like, I've actually done some stuff. Fantastic. It's a thrill to be here. I'm really excited to like jump in and talk about this movie and talk with you guys tonight. I am stoked. There is no stranger feeling. And Mike, you've been in the podcasting business for a minute. There's no stranger feeling that when you guest in somebody else's podcast and they read your credentials and you're like, who the fuck is that? Oh, that's me. I've done those things. Oh yeah, that's right. So we're happy. We're happy we can hype you up a little bit and kind of put all your fancy pedigree in mm-hmm. one place for listeners to go seek you out. Yeah. But those, it, those, those locks are looking great, Matt. I would say you should have a super duper patron level where you send a few of them. You know, if you get like to the $500 tier, you get a lock of your hair. No, that's People not OnlyFans. For it. That's my OnlyFans account. Yeah. Excellent. I did the COVID beard where it like grew out massively bushy. And then mm-hmm. after a year and a couple months, my wife actually pulled me aside and said, I find you much less attractive with a beard that long. And I'm like, okay, time to cut it. Like immediately, let's cut it. So, 
Yeah. You know, we do have we have a certified forgotten Pornhub account for some of the the video essays that we put out there. It's only a matter of time before we have a certified forgotten OnlyFans account too. It's true for Donato cutting his hair off and uh, selling it to people who are bidding for it. <laughs> That's apparently what we're doing fine. Don't worry, this podcast is going exactly where we intended. Well, we will take this to a private chat later to decide which of Donato's fans would be most interested in buying a lock of his hair. But to keep us on schedule for this particular podcast, Mike, as we do on the show every every time, you know, we really want to give you an opportunity for people that might not be familiar with your work to kind of understand your origin story, how mm-hmm. you got into the horror genre, sure. like what those first movies were, how they got under your skin, all that good stuff. So take us back to Baby Mike. Take us back to the first horror movie that you remember the first time you kind of had an experience where you were like this is something that makes me feel something and i want to keep digging into it my earliest memory of a horror movie was only one scene where my cousin was watching salem's lot toby hooper's salem's lot Mm. he was staying over our house for some reason he was a few years older than me it was like a sunday morning it was just playing on like hbo or whatever and I snuck downstairs. He's like, you don't want to watch this. It's going to scare you. I'm mm-hmm. like, I want to watch it. I'm four. Like, I'm a big boy now. I can watch whatever I want. Like, he's like, you don't want to watch it. And sure enough, the jailhouse scene happened. And um, Barlow, like, pops up in the jailhouse. It's a great jump scare. And I immediately ran upstairs bawling, hid under my bed, and cried for hours. Like, it scared me that badly. Um, but at the same time, it was like, that was also exciting. So my grandmother used to pay us like $5 when we would sleep over there to stay up and watch horror movies with her. So all the old, like, late night, like the old Nosferatu, the Creature Double Features, all of that stuff. And I don't remember any specific movies, but I just remember, like, staying up with her and like being like, I'm up way past my bedtime. This is so neat. Um, for whatever reason, the town I grew up in, their public library in the children's section in the early 80s had an absolutely incredible occult section. Like stuff that you don't find in the adult section of modern libraries because it's too out there. So there were all these like the true history of vampire books, the true history of witchcraft, true hauntings through the ages. And I must have read like every book on vampires from the age of like six mm. on like six through 10. Like I just grabbed them every week just and it was like all the woodcuts from Vlad the Impaler. It was like the history of the Penny Dreadfuls and Varney the Vampire. Um, and from there I started like at like the age of eight or nine, like I read Cujo by Stephen King, like way too young of an age. And uh, Matt, you've talked mm-hmm. about this, Matt Denai, you've talked about this on how your parents are like, you can't watch PG-13 movies. Like my parents were the same way. There was no PG-13 back in then, but they were very much, even as a like a, early teenager like oh it's rated r you can't watch it like if you're 16 years and 364 days old you can't go to an r-rated movie but the minute you turn 17 it's okay well we used to just like sneak into our friend's basement and watch horror movies like that was our thing to do in the first real movie that i remember like that really spawned my love for horror was like freddy's revenge and nightmare on elm street 2 and I remember like watching that on cable, hiding behind my friend's sofa because it was just absolutely terrifying to me. Um, but at the same time, like loving that movie 
And from that point on, you would bike down to the local video store. You would get like the teenage clerk that really didn't care what you rented as long as you had cash. And you would just, we would just take turns renting any and every horror movie on the shelf. In fact, we would do like Faces of Death, the Friday the 13th movies, Pumpkinhead, all the Elm Streets. And to this day, like A Nightmare in Elm Street remains my favorite franchise. Um, and I think it all harkens back to those early memories of like Mark Showstrom's makeup work in Freddy's Revenge with like Jesse uh, or Freddy popping out of Jesse uh, and all the makeup work there occurring. And that just, it freaked me out so much, but it was the good kind of freak out where you immediately want more of it. And I was, and still am a big scaredy cat. Like I remember the end of fifth grade, finishing the Amityville horror novel. And I was a choir boy at the time or no, an altar boy at the time. And I finished the book and I have this really Catholic household and the next morning I woke up with chicken pox, but it, I didn't know it was chicken pox. When I first woke up, I thought like God was punishing me for reading this absolutely blasphemous book and I was going to burn in hell. And this was the first sign of it. So yeah, horror has just been something that's been with me since I was like a wee kid. It's um, I've made like the best friends I've made in life through either the horror community or the punk rock community. Uh, and I've passed down that love of horror to my, she'll be 11 years old next week. And her current favorite movie is PG Psycho Goreman. Uh, it's replaced Elm Street three is her favorite movie. <laughs> so. That is a, that is so a I, big replacement. Also, I, I yeah. love the fact that if I'm hearing correctly, your grandma bribed you, yeah. paid you $5 you to stay up yep. and watch horror. That is fantastic. That is a great origin. Yeah. Yeah, it is. She was because she loved scary movies, but she didn't like to be scared. So it was that it was the creature double features on Saturday afternoons with my dad. Like we'd watch the old Universal like we the Universal horror was just a staple. And then Hammer Horror um, and then the Tales from the Dark Side TV show like that would come on after the creature double feature. And it had that amazing entry, uh, uh, that amazing um, credit sequence. And that stuff just creeps me out so much. I, I couldn't get enough of it. Like I could never, to this day, my mom is like, do you, why do you still love this stuff? Like, aren't you a little bit old for it? It's like, hell no. Like I'm still, still, I think in some ways chasing that high from being like five, six, seven, eight years old. Donato, I'm so glad you jumped in there with the ground. Cause if you weren't, I was going to, mm -hmm. but I think, by by some metrics, Mike, I think that probably means that you were the like paid film critic before Early anybody on. else we've ever talked to. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You were, you were making a living and mm -hmm. you know, at four years old, $5 a, a pop is, is a living. You were making a living at this way younger than anybody else we've oh, ever yeah. talked to. And back in like, that's 1980 money too. Like that is mm. probably a good, like $8 and 50 cents in 2021. <laughs> inflation. You, you know, got so You got to account for absolutely. that inflation. That's a lot of Kit Kats. It was definitely a lot of Kit Kats, Kit Kats and candy slang. necklaces. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, Kit Kats is not a slang in this. I really just meant no. candy. <laughs> yeah, Kit Kat candy bar. No, that, there was a lot, that, a lot of candy necklaces and stuff like that. Absolutely. Well, let me ask um, kind of the next phase of your horror fandom then, because you're talking about like growing up and having a sense of community, having friendships, having family connections that formed around the horror genre. 
Um, but obviously, you know, there's a lot that you do in kind of in the industry now. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious when you first started putting, you know, those first, those first feelers in high school or in college or in your, you know, post, post education years, when did you start to be like, all right, there's some stuff that I can do that isn't just enjoying it with my friends. It would have been young adulthood and it sprung from exactly like enjoying it with friends where at the house I lived in at the time, there were like nine of us punks living there and I had a projector and I would just post on like local message boards, like going to throw some burgers on the grill and watch a couple horror movies tonight. Anyone wants in, come over, just don't be an asshole. Uh, and this to this day, like right before we started, I like, texted uh, one of my best, dearest friends, like Lindsay, happy birthday. Um, she um, was one of the persons that came over and she remains one of my closest friends. And that, happened for a few years we would just do sunday double features and then i'm like i want to start a site and i'll just start writing and have some of my friends write with me and one of my friends jumped on Mm -hmm. we started like a blog called all things horror uh and it was 2009 i think the first thing i reviewed it was rob zombies halloween 2 which i'm still ride or die for love that one hate his original halloween but love his sequel for some reason i don't know um And people started to read it. Like, it was just a little blog. It was a two-man show. Um, It was a time where there were sites like Planet of Terror and The Jaded Viewer. Um, BJ Colangelo was doing Day of the Woman. So all of these great little horror sites. Um, John Squires from Bloody Disgusting was doing Freddy in Space at the time. So all of these great little writers were doing their own independent thing and then you know would eventually go on to kind of build a much bigger larger name for themselves um and what really changed for me was going to a little film like the new york city horror film festival uh in november of 2009 like i had posted they had sent me a link to like their pr um thing and i put it on my site you know i'm like i just need to get some content up this looks pretty cool and uh, Michael Hayne, who unfortunately has since passed away, um, contacted me. I said, hey, thanks for posting that. Um, do you want to come down and cover it? And I'm like, yeah, that would be neat. Like, I'll get, you know, like, I've never even, like, what is it? It's like, it's, you know, I've never gone to a horror film festival before. Um, and I, at that time, was, like, covering all mainstream things. Like, we were writing about, like I said, like, the, the remakes, um, Paranormal Activity, uh, the strangers. And then this like film fest com- opened my eyes to this incredible array of like micro budget, independent horror movies that I would not have known existed otherwise. And it was honestly, it was like hearing like minor threat or black flag or who's do for the first time, like all over again. It was that like, this is stuff that speaks to me on a level that I didn't know existed. And that's all I really, from that point on, it's what we shifted our focus to on the site was probably about 80 to 90% independent horror. And that's what we wrote about. We got an opportunity to record like a commentary with a little film called Dawning uh, with a few, like a few other bloggers. Cause we had really kind of championed the release of that film. Uh, Chris and I started to, book movies in Boston every month at a little theater in Somerville. They had like a, like a 40 seat theater. They would charge us next to nothing for rent um, every month. And we would book like movies that 
were playing the festival circuit, but maybe didn't get into things like the larger film festival, the Boston Underground Film Fest, which is a tremendous uh, festival that Kevin uh, and Nicole run here in Boston. But maybe those films didn't make it, but we Mm -hmm. thought we could give them a uh, place to screen them. So we started the show, these great, like, I think we did the um, early Soska sister films. We did uh, Jeremy Gardner's The Battery. We did Exploitation Fair, like Dear God No. We did an animated take on Return of the Living, uh, Night of the Living Dead, um, which was interesting in that you had like a hundred different animators do little segments of it. It was a great experiment, if not a great movie. Um, But for five years, we just started the show, all these little indie titles. We then did like a big night where we did like Spring was the headliner. And someone said, like, you'll never top this movie. And I'm like, you know, you're probably right. And it's been five years. Like, this is a good note to kind of go out on. Because by that point, we were struggling. Things had shifted a bit. And we we were struggling to get titles. Or I'm like, I feel good about charging money for this one. Um, But I think uh, the movie we're going to talk about tonight is one of the ones we did. So that was that. I stopped kind of writing for a few years. Um, And then after grad school, had the idea to start doing The Pod and the Pendulum, which is the podcast I do. Um, I'm like, let's do franchises. Um, That way, if we can record a bunch of episodes, you know, if I can't do it every week, it's no big deal. Um, We're going to have different guests every week. And Jerry Smith, who was the original co-host for the first like 97 episodes, is like, yeah, I'll just co-host with you. And we had never spoken before that. I'm like, all right, you're in, you know, and he brought a tremendous energy and passion and love for the genre. And we just, it clicked right away. We had a blast doing it. Um, He's moved on because, you know, Jerry makes a living writing about this stuff and this is just a hobby for me. So, you know, he needs to pay the bills and, you know, you guys know this is a lot of work. Like it's insane how much goes into Mm -hmm. making an episode um, which is why you should support this show's Patreon as well as others. Um, and the show is continued. Stealth bumper, love it. I know, I know, I'm a big fan. Um, the show's continued now with Lindsay Travis, who had guested with us on Alien and Prometheus, and she was the first and only person I reached out to when um, Jerry had to step aside from it. I'm like, who do I want? I want someone incredibly intelligent incredibly funny and smart and that is going to like put in the same level of work and effort that I'm going to in every show. And I think she kind of laps me sometimes. Like she's just the hardest working person I know when it comes to this stuff. So since this uh, November end of November, early December, she's been also six months now. Um, and she's helped take the show to new heights, like incredibly grateful for everything she does. And she's just, so good so yeah we're 113 episodes in we covered like halloween and blair witch project just finished evil dead um friday the 13th movies the elm street movies and we have like a ton more that we're going to be doing um and it's just been like a blast especially during the pandemic it kept me sane like doing this like Mm-hmm. talking to different people every week and looking forward to recording. Like it gave me something to look forward to every week during a time where like every day just felt like the same day over. It was like groundhog day, but more depressing. 
Yeah, Donato and I often talk on the show about the day job thing, right? Like the people that 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 have the full time career and kind of fill their free time with this. But I've always been kind of fascinated with the, especially the newest iteration of your podcast because you are a licensed therapist and mm-hmm. Lindsay is a practicing lawyer, and that's a lot of pedigree. That's a lot of pedigree and a lot of outside knowledge to bring to conversations about film yeah. and about horror in particular. So the dynamic on that is just super, super yeah. interesting and what you guys can draw on as you're talking about some of these franchises. Yeah, yeah and so much of horror is, you know, especially in 2021, it, you know, it, it deals with trauma and grief and anxieties and um, so much of horror, like the monster of the week flavor of horror, like basically your monsters are a stand-in for whatever the anxiety of the day is at that point. So it's kind of fascinating to explore the genre through that lens. And it's different. It's something we do in my other show uh, with Jen Adams, uh, formerly of the horror virgin and now with losers, the losers club and uh, Laura Understall, who's been with the Halloweenies podcast. And as a filmmaker in her own right, we do a show called uh, psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, which it'd been like the fans for that have been incredible. And it's, it's made me a better therapist because I do a lot more reading and research that I may not have gotten to otherwise just for the show. Cause we want to bring like peer reviewed articles and facts, not opinion to it. Um, but every month we cover like a different mental health topic, whether it's anxiety, residential treatment, narcissism, um, this month we're doing like bad dads and how they can kind of influence one's upbringing. Um, so every week we, you know, we alternate between a deep dive into a mental health topic, um, and a movie that focuses on it. Like we did paranoia and like a double feature of like the burbs and fright night, uh, schizophrenia and a wonderful Mm. little indie film. They look like people, um, which is one of my, just adore that movie. But then we'll do like a comfort horror in between where we just talk about movies that bring us like comfort and self-care and joy. Although those movies can be heavy, Um, like heavier than like, you know, sometimes like the self-care movie is like people dive into some real, real stuff. And it's like, I just want to keep those light and fluffy. And it's like, nope, we're going to like take a deep dive into history here. And it, it, it can be a lot sometimes. And also, you know, comfort is for different reasons. And, you know, when I watch a comfort movie, it might be to escape. It might also be to deal with something. It might be to watch a movie that I find, quote unquote, comfortable. But then someone looks at me and is like, why do you find this comfortable? And I have to, like, like you just said, I have Mm -hmm. to analyze why I find it comfortable. And all of a sudden I'm saying these things out loud that like, it is my own little therapy session. Like, holy crap, I find this comfortable because X, Y, Z, connect dots, all of a sudden mind explodes. Yeah. And there's been a lot of, articles lately looking at horror as a way to quell anxieties in part because it allows you control over your environment like one of the wonderful things about watching a movie at home is there's a pause button so if something gets to be too much for you you can pause it take a deep breath gather your senses get grounded in the moment And by doing things like that, you can then apply that skill later on, like when your anxiety becomes overwhelming, take a deep breath, take a pause. And it's a way to kind of like train a person to kind of deal with those anxieties. Um, And just the fact that watching someone undergo some horrific experiences 
makes you feel like less alone sometimes. There's been like a number of articles that have dived into specifically how horror has helped persons get through COVID and the pandemic and how horror fans tend to be the more well-adjusted and more able to kind of cope with it for those reasons. It's almost kind of like, it's like Rocky Balboa training his whole life. And then he gets the call. Um, You know, you're going to fight Apollo Creed. Like he's been waiting his whole life for that moment. And now it's come, you know, horror fans during COVID are like, right. I've been waiting my whole life to bunker down because the apocalypse is here and I am ready for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and before Monogle takes over again, as you know, this is more his segment. But before, I will just say a little spoiler. And as you mentioned, Jen Adams is helping you on that podcast journey of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And Jen also has a piece coming up for us next month about Daniel isn't Excellent. real, the Baba Duke, and mental mental health and some personal things. So I'm very, we are very excited to put that to the world. And it's it's just what you said, talking about how people are diving into that more and more now because they're just more comfortable doing it. And I think that's the way that journalism is going in a way. Uh, We're becoming more open, honest. And as a writer, uh, the hardest pieces I have to write are the ones where I dig deep and allow myself to be on the page and bear all. But there's never been anything better than I've ever written than my piece uh, about the farewell and my grandmother's death. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's the trade-off. And now people are starting to do that trade-off now. And I'm really excited to get pitches again, like Jen's, to really put themselves out there and, you know, Jason Scott's last time was another great one where, you know, Jason put himself mm-hmm. on the page and you read it and it's just like, holy crap, it just connects. Jen is tremendous, like not only as a, a host of psychoanalysis, um, but also like her writing is incredible. Like she has a, a site she's running now called um, Strong Female Antagonist or a little blog that she's doing where she writes about these things and her work is incredible. So I, I am looking forward to kind of seeing that piece as well and what she brings to the table. And I'd say like, if anyone out there is like thinking of starting a podcast, if I can give you a piece of advice, like partner with people that are like smarter than you and and harder working than you and ride their coattails for all it's worth. Like Mm -hmm. I've managed to do it on two shows uh, and I will reap all those rewards. So very happy about that. But no, they're again, just like, I cannot say enough great things about like the people I've been able to partner with. I'm very, very fortunate that I've been four for four so far. Otherwise it could have gone a lot differently. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just a quick, quick note to you, Donato. And with all sincerity, it tickles me that maybe the best piece you've ever written is a piece that has nothing to do with horror. It's just like anytime anybody thinks that like, Oh, well, I've, we've got Donato. We can put him in a corner. He's just like the low budge horror guy. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. Mm-hmm. have you read his piece on the farewell? the best piece he's ever written maybe the best piece i'll ever write and it has nothing to do with the horror genre so nobody puts donato in the corner mike last question for you before we talk about today's movie um you know i'm always really curious and you mentioned before um you know kind of navigating this the horror space now with with your daughter uh-huh. i'm i'm you hear a lot on uh in horror communities about kind of the future of horror and what the youth are or aren't bringing to the genre what they are taking away if they're you know they're bringing EQ or if they're, you know, kind of take trying to apply a blanket approach to horror that doesn't really fit if they're diminishing the Like there's all of these conversations that happen about what the next generation, if it's a step forward or a step back for horror is a genre. So as somebody who does this for a living, who helps people navigate, you know, uncertain spaces for a living, somebody who's doing this with his daughter right now, 
you know, what have you learned? What do you think kind of the future of the horror is through her eyes? What is, what is teaching her about your love of the genre taught you about horror? It's really interesting because I think that there's something that's a little bit lost in that everything is so accessible to everybody all the time. And the joy of discovery is a little bit gone. Um, Cause like I said, like part of the beauty of like watching horror is like an adolescent and a teenager was there was a taboo to it. Like for me, it, I wasn't supposed to watch anything like Friday the 13th or a nightmare in Elm street or Hellraiser. I had to sneak to kind of do those things. And even if like I didn't allow her to watch things with me, all she has to do is go on Netflix or Hulu and Amazon and go on her Kindle. Like there's no way for me to track every single thing that she's ever watched. Um, And we try to do as good of a job as possible. Like we're more prone to like, Hey, this wouldn't be an appropriate like YouTube to follow or a TikTok to follow than we would be like a a narrative function. Um, I think that you're going to see a lot of horror come out of, this time that's going to deal with a lot of social anxiety and a lot of isolational fears. I work as a counselor with students in a school. Then I work as a mental health therapist um, as a side job as well. And I feel like, and maybe it's like this for every generation. And I don't want to feel like the old man yelling at the clouds, but I feel like this current generation has a much more difficult time navigating like social interactions that maybe. I took for granted growing up and I'm a little bit of an extrovert. So that, you know, even though I get nervous around people, I kind of just push through it because I like to be around people, but I feel like very simple conversational skills um, or the ability to kind of read the room and read what's going on with other people has kind of gone away. Um, And kids, a lot of their, like a lot of like our daughter's having her birthday gathering this weekend we're having a few kids over to sleep over they're going to sleep on her trampoline uh and watch a movie outside on the projector and have a nice little night out but they're like oh yeah bring your electronics and we're like why like you kids are right there but realizing no that is how kids communicate nowadays like over electronics even when they're right next to one another and it's not too different from like playing you know donkey kong or like nintendo with like a buddy growing up like playing madden uh, growing up, mm-hmm. but it just feels different somehow because they're like not talking. They're like texting even when they're near one another. And I think you're going to see a lot of more horror that deals with kind of like social isolation and the fears of like navigating through the world and not always having the skill set to do it. Um, I think on the positive side, I think that this generation is much more accepting and empathetic of persons of more different backgrounds and genders and orientations where a lot of the culture war battles that our generation is currently fighting uh, and we're seeing it like florida yesterday passed a bill banning transgendered girls from playing youth sports um in the gender they feel they are which is just it's grotesque and it's the same kind of like culture war bullshit can i curse on the show Oh, I've already said fuck like four times. That's true. Okay. Uh, it's the same kind of culture war bullshit that we fought in the mid 2000s around gay marriage, uh, where there's always going to be a boogeyman. I think, you know, my child's generation is going to look at those times and be like, what the hell were you fighting about? Like, this is bullshit. Um, you know, my daughter and her friends have talked about, 
you know, like things like pansexuality and bisexuality in a way where I'm like, when I was your age, I just had crushes on people. And it's not like super depth in depth conversation, but it's kind of normalizing different kinds of um, love and acceptance for people. That's really wonderful. So I don't know. We'll always find something to be afraid of. Yeah. I've always, I don't know. Whenever I talk about kind of like this current generation and what they're going to bring to the table in horror, I feel like people of our age and our age range, the thing I keep coming back to is we, I can't wrap my head around what it's like to go through weekly or monthly trainings in school where they're like, Hey, somebody just walked in the Mm -hmm. doors and is shooting all of you. So practice standing still and hoping you're not dying. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the experience of being a teenager is just so fundamentally different to what I grew up with. And like that anxiety is baked into the experience, right? Like you are practicing your own death on a regular basis in school. So I don't know. Like I, I just, when they come of age, when, when this generation that grew up with active shooter drills and, and in a completely different environment, when they start making movies, I, I, I'm just no. curious to see what they'll bring to that because I can't like, I can't even imagine the sort of issues that they've been trying to fucking deal no. with for 10 years. And when they get access to a movie camera and a budget, they're going to be like, all right, boom, this is it. Well, I think they're, they're also going to be, they're going to be dealing with the death of the American dream. Like this is really, our generation and more so their generation, it's the first one where the idea that you're going to have it better better than your parents, it's not only not guaranteed anymore, but it's just not going to happen. Um, we're looking at like a housing crisis where, you know, middle class persons are going to get priced out of the housing market quickly and every, we'll be a nation of renters. We're looking at like more jobs that are going to be lost as things move like far more towards automation. Um, And you're looking at things like there's not enough emphasis put on trade schools and where people can make like a real wage doing day to day stuff that we need people to do. Um, And you're going to be in forever debt trying to just pay for like a state university. So you're going to be looking at a generation that's going to be looking at like if not poverty, then living a lot more hand to mouth um, and the anxieties that that is going to bring. Like this idea that like if you work really hard and save and keep your nose to the grindstone, everything's going to turn out okay for you in the end. It's now become if you work really hard, you're going to make someone else really rich and maybe every now and then you'll be able to like eat out at a restaurant for a nice night out. Um, It's It Mm -hmm. sucks. It feels like it's going to be a generation of people that are always like one disaster away from like, or one accident away from complete financial catastrophe Um, and the anxieties and the fears that come along with that. So I think you're going to see a lot of like, to your point, like the school shooting and the anxieties that come with like a lot of reality based horror, like a lot of things that we're going to be exploring those kind of fears. Um, And I would imagine there's going to be a lot of anger that's going to come out of, that generation mm-hmm. of horror as well. I just, I'm turning in a piece tonight for a site on the early 2000s, uh, that first decade of horror. And that is some of the angriest shit that you're going to find on film. And it was a time of like tremendous upheaval and unrest. And we we're questioning who we were as a country. And as, as we were questioning our own ethics and morality. And you have like these scenes of like tremendous gore and torture that are prolonged. It's no longer about what an awesome special effect it's about. Yeah. We're doing this to people on a daily basis and we're not doing anything about it. Who are we now? 
Um, so I think that anger is going to come out in this generation as well. And before Monogal transitions us beautifully to talk about another gore driven film on our back end, uh, <laughs> to both of what you guys are saying, if you did not see the fallout yet, which only played South by Southwest mm-hmm. and it won awards mm-hmm. and it will be coming out hopefully soon. Uh, the fallout is everything you're talking about. It is excellent. I mean, it's directed by someone born in 1986. So, you know, someone will, long our age a little more a little mm-hmm. older but stars jenna ortega absolutely starts with a school shooting and what this is about is exactly what you're saying it is this this movie about fear and how people just have to or sorry not people children how children have to mm-hmm. live today and how they cope with that and how we take for mm-hmm. granted so much of it and it's just adults yeah. being like well whatever when i was your age when you were your sorry when you were their age you weren't standing in a bathroom and then all of a sudden there's an active shooter in the hallway. Like that is the movie. And when I say it is funny, it is heartfelt. It is heartbreaking. It is everything at the same time because it is about kids just trying to get through and the way they get through, you actually get to watch the process happen. But so keep the fallout on your list. Please watch for it to come out. It is fantastic. I just wrote that one down. I'm dig. I haven't been able to finish it, but I'm digging what I've seen of the hive which you recommended during our Evil Dead show. I'd say on that note, the dirties handled what goes into making a school shooter like really well, like to the point where you can feel a little bit of sympathy for the kids, but also be horrified. I thought that was like handled incredibly well for like a very sensitive subject. Yeah, so as is our tradition on Certified Forgotten, we have had the meatiest pre-show conversation like the most thoughtful and in-depth and wide-ranging conversation. And we're going to pair it with, with just an absolute, an absolute midnighter of like the most pure quality. So we're going to step away for a second. And when we come back, we're going to talk about sweatshop. Um, so downshift the conversation caliber a little bit. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, welcome to the midpoint of the episode. As always, we want to say thank you to the people who support us on Patreon and make this episode and every episode possible, which is why we're turning the microphone over to them. We've got uh, we've got two bumpers this week that we're going to read. And Donato, what you got for us? Our first bumper comes from Corey. Hi, Corey. Hi, Corey. You have a little question for us, Corey, and I'm going to read it and I'm going to have Monogle go first because I have my answer very very easily, and it's a weird one, and I want to see if Monogle, uh, I don't think he'll take this answer, but let's give it a check. So, Corey has asked us, discuss your favorite horror theme game, video, board, whatever, and why it should be made into a movie. So I assume it can't be something like Silent Hill, which has historically been my favorite horror theme thing. It's a movie. Yeah, I, I think that's off the table. It is a movie already. That's off the table. Okay, okay, okay. All right, here, here. I'll, I will make it easier. I'm going first. Do it. Okay. There's a rail shooter in arcades called Carnival. It was a one one time go around. I don't think they ever did a sequel. And it is this bonkers off the wall creative uh, first person shooter where you're holding a shotgun and it's these people going through a haunted carnival and there is a Santa land, there's a haunted house land, there are mm. these wonderful landmarks, wonderful settings, and it has so much fun creating these like evil little elves and elf costumes for Santa World and the detail is crazy. 
I want to see somebody take that into like the upper echelon Midnighter realm of doing a Carnival movie where all the villains are there, all the crazy craziness is there. It's very cartoonish. It's not trying to be even as serious as House of the Dead. And I really mm -hmm. believe that could be such a fun movie. So Carnival is always my go-to for this. I don't know why I thought you were going to take it now that I said board game out loud before, because I know you're going to take a board game, but uh, Monocle. Yeah. Um, well, let's go a little, let's go a little bit. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's do Dead of Winter. So Dead of Winter is a crossroads game. Um, it is a board game where basically you play a group of survivors that are trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic setting. You have to go out and do things every time to get supplies for your camp, but there are also zombies out there. And one person who might not be who they say they are, might not work, be working at the same ends. Honestly, like, listen, it's every zombie movie you've ever watched, but, but it takes place in the winter. And that to me is the big differentiating factor is that we have a lot of zombie movies that take place in hot, warm climates. And I'd like to see something that uses a little bit of, you know, it incorporates a little bit of the gamification element, but also takes place in the dead of winter. Other than that, if I wasn't going to use that particular one, I'd say if they made a Bandersnatch style experience with Until Dawn, I could probably get really, really, really behind that. But only that specifically a Bandersnatch style experience for Until Dawn. I would love that taking Until Dawn in the gameplay and just can it just is the movie. Yeah, that, I, I think but that is brilliant. Until Dawn is also sort of a movie, anyways. Yeah, exactly. It's even got like it's even got an Academy Award winner, so you know yeah. it is what it is. Agreed. Well. There is your answer, Corey. I hope it was everything you hoped for. And for our second bumper, Luke keeps it as easy as possible and just says happy pride. So we agree, Luke. We agree. Nothing else to say there. Happy pride, everyone. Thank you for listening. And let's get back to the show, huh? Hey, welcome back. So this week on the podcast, we are talking about Sweatshop. Sweatshop is a 2009 horror film directed and uh, edited and cinematography by Stacey Davidson. It was co-written by Stacey Davidson and friend of the show, Ted Gagan, uh, who you might remember from a movie. I can't even, I won't even say the title, but it's zombie ass toilet of the dead. Previous guest. So friend of the show, <laughs> Ted Gagan. And it is, I mean, usually there's a long plot synopsis here where I try and give a flavor for the film without giving away any spoilers. And I like try and walk this line of synopsis. It's a movie about a group of ravers who go into an abandoned warehouse and then they get killed. Like that's the log line. That's the, that's this, that's the treatment. That was probably the sales pitch, right? That is, that's the story. It is, I called it before the break, a midnighter in the truest sense. And it is a midnighter in the truest sense of the word. So we're going to get into this film. We're going to talk about um, why this was such an, you know, an important film for you as a programmer and also as a film critic. And we're going to get into our reactions a little bit because mm -hmm. I'm so curious to see where this falls into the yeah. spectrum. But Mike, start, start us off. You had your pick of the litter. You gave us mm -hmm. two, to yeah. be fair. You were kind of bouncing between a little bit. But the last call went to you and you said, all right, we're doing Sweatshop. Yeah. Why this film? I think it's because it's the we I mentioned the New York City Horror Film Festival. This was, I mm -hmm. believe, the first film they showed. It was either this or The Revenant. Um, and this just jumped out at me as a super fun, gory, bloody, tremendous practical effects, tremendous kills. The audience was super into it. Um, at the time, 
I don't think I had seen like a great, like just straight up slasher movie in who knows how long by 2009, which is ironic because they were remaking slasher movies left and right, but they didn't, the remakes Mm -hmm. didn't feel like this movie did. Like this felt like an early to mid eighties, like slasher movie. Um, And it's a nothing burger of a plot. Um, I will say I found, I think part of it in remembering back was like, I found the cast tremendously attractive. Um, You know, I have a thing for like the alt rock, punk rock look. So that's kind of what they're going for here. And that definitely um, didn't hurt. Um, And I would say that like, it's less about this movie and more about what this movie did for me in terms of like what I started to focus writing on and watching. And it just brings me back to like this period of time where I got to discover a ton of cool shit. Like, and this was like the catalyst weird as it is, is like tiny little um, slasher movie that probably costs like a few hundred bucks to make aside from the effects. Uh, And it just spawned like 10 years of trying to find more stuff like that and find that thrill. I can drop our first fun fact for Mr. Gagan because he texted mm-hmm. me the entire time I told him I was watching his movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I can correct you, not to correct, but I can actually confirm mm-hmm. that this movie cost $7,000. That's all they had. Mm-hmm. So you look at the gore, you look at everything. This was a $7,000 project. That was the budget. Given the effects that are, that's great use of your $7,000. No, it's a single location film. But that single location really works, I think, to the film's benefit. Um, You have the rave at the end of the movie, and it's not giant. Like, obviously, like, you don't get a cast of thousands to go to it, but it still makes pretty good use of the extras. And the couple of the kills in this, like, there's three that jump out. uh, I'm sure we'll get into that are like, fantastic fucking kills in this movie uh, that are just like, how do they do that? And let me just applaud while I'm watching it. And I'll admit like rewatching this last night in preparation for the show. I'm like, all right, this doesn't necessarily hold up as like a great movie, but God damn, it's a lot. And you know, it is, it would probably get canceled quite quickly for some of the way the humor goes in this movie, but it is, um, It just tickles me. It's just part of it. Like it just tickles me. Well, I think we we've talked a lot on the show about kind of the way the budget informs how we think about a movie. Right. And like Mm -hmm. it is at the one point, you know, there's, there is a sense that like, yes, you're kind of grading everything as a feature film. You don't want to give anything, uh, you know, in, in, in the golf sense, a handicap because you want to make sure that everybody's sort of on a level playing field. You're not dis, you know, you're, you're, you're not, um, what's the word that I'm looking for doing a disservice to the artist by basically saying like, Oh, this is fine for a movie that was no budget. But I think mm-hmm. there is a natural element of that too, where we as horror fans have been raised on a super low budget horror films. And so we're looking for, we're looking for reasons to fall in love with the DIY aesthetic. We're looking for reasons to find movies that we really super enjoy that it's like they left every blood, sweat and tear on the page, you know, like, and there is probably a correlation between horror films that have the director wearing multiple like pre-roll hats, cinematographer, editor, producer, co-writer, like horror fans love that. They love it when they don't, when movies can't afford 
all these different roles. And so it's one person breathing a passion project into life. And I think something that is interesting about this before we get into all the stuff about the violence and the cast and et cetera, is, you know, this, this is sort of, this is a film that was kind of, kind of came to me, at least in how I remember it came at a period where we weren't talking about horror communities in the same way we are now. So like, this is a little bit before Mumblegore, right? Mumblegore was one of the first big, like, here's a group of filmmakers and a group of artists that are creating together and they're showing up in each other's movies and like, they're drawing inspiration from each other. And we see this, this is, this is an interesting little outlier to me because as you're going through this, you are seeing a sense of community on the screen that is in, like even more apparent in hindsight. When you have somebody like Mike Gingold who shows up at the cop is at the beginning, you have a cameo from Donato's boy, Joe Lynch is Joe in here Lynch. too. And made sure that we called that out on Twitter. He, he let us know that he has a cameo in this. And so it's interesting to see this as a film, not just it's like a low budget film or a, you know, a slasher, not necessarily just within the, the 2000s mode of horror, but it's one of the first, it's one of the movies that I can think of from that decade that you're like, I have a sense of who this community is. And that certainly pays forward when you look at what a lot of these people would do after this movie. You can kind of see that that connective tissue between filmmakers and creatives who are like, we're going to start small and we're going to keep working until, you know, we get we get opportunity to do bigger and better stuff, which everybody involved in this has had that opportunity at one point. Yeah. And it's even funny, too, because watching the credits and as you just said, the Gingolds, the Lynches, they, they are there. Gingold, the nicest man in the history of the world forced to play a cop who shoots a girl like 15 times and then curses and runs mm -hmm. away. Like it is just so anti-Gingold that I only Ted Gagan could get Gingold to do that. I do want to say that out loud because they are, they are tremendous together, but even I, I didn't even notice uh, like I'm Facebook friends with, with the main villain because I had met Jeremy Summerall at, at a festival somewhere mm -hmm. along the lines and became Facebook friends. And all of a sudden I see the name and I tie it back and I'm like, yeah, of course it's the same, the same guy. So that sense of community is kind of what you said. I think, this is very much, as you said, yeah. early in that, but it's also coming off the back end of a period in horror history and to what Mike said about 2000s horror and how angry it was and, and kind of mm -hmm. what mode they were in. This is an amalgamation of that. And you can also see, you know, anyone involved writing. So not just Ted, but Ted and his partner writing. You can see their influences and you can see the throwbacks to the 80s that they love so very much. But then trying to wrap it in this rave kid lens, which is bonkers because it's the last we really see of that for a little while. I just wrote about Evil Dead being so mean, nasty and in your face. And I really think that's one of the last times we got that in yeah. our horror that we know ever since it's gone more the, you know, it's gone for the quote unquote A24 route. It's gone that type of horror, big, big ethereal kind of heady stories less about the effects and less about the kills, more about what's happening. But sweat, Sweatshop is very much about the kills. It is very much one of that yes. last three years, four-year period where you're caught between Saw and a hard place and you have to live up to the gore of Saw, but you still want to try something different. And that, to me, that is Sweatshop. That, that's where it comes out. This feels like the kind of like when you watch like Tourist Trap or Terror Train the fun house, like movies of that ilk where I don't want to say you like the characters in this movie because it, it does fall into a trope that I don't always love where there are times where I'm like, none of these people actually fucking like one another. And that can be a little bit difficult at times, but there are like a couple moments of like, actually like genuine, like sweetness and warmth 
Um, I'm thinking of like the studly dude who's into, the, I can't think of his name, um, but he's like kind of comforting the young woman who's like been kind of, um, I guess like cuckolded in a way, I guess, by her friend. So she mm-hmm. hooks up with him yeah. and they're like having this conversation. She's listening to like this kind of sappy country music and like it's like comes out of nowhere. But really what we're here to talk about is the fact that you have a 400 pound beast of a man dressed in like bearskin rugs and a welding helmet. And he's carrying something that makes like Thor's hel- uh, hammer look like a ball peen hammer. Basically, he has this giant ass anvil that he's just swinging around like no one's business um, and causing all sorts of gore and mayhem. Like the fact that you get like a face that is like smashed through the grates of like a service elevator and it just like viscera and blood comes flying out of it. You're like, bravo, my friend, like give me that. Like the difference between this and a Saw movie to me, like there's a lot of gore in Saw, but it's really like I have a really hard time when people are bound and helpless and they know what's going to happen to them and no amount of pleading will ever change it. I can't deal with it. I can't. But if you give me a dude who doesn't know what's coming and they get smashed in the face with a giant anvil, not so bad to me. One sentence you articulated every reason why I hate Saw and every reason why other slashers are actually okay to me. Oh, yes, exactly that. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. I was going to say, to me, the Beast feels very much like Pyramid Head, but like the redneck version. Because mm-hmm. it, it's, yeah. you know, the welding mm-hmm. ha- the welding helmet becomes a thing in the movie because we get welding helmet vision half the time. Yes. And they do this really interesting effect where it's like a graphic overlay and you get the mm-hmm. red lens of the the welding lens there and you're watching from the killer's point of view which is an interesting little twist because there's first person there's been first person since Friday the 13th uh you know Pamela Voorhees doing it we we were in her eyes so it's not new necessarily and go back to peeping tom etc cetera, etc cetera, we can do a whole list on that but to do it on a low budget and again to do it differently there's actually this hilarious joke on I play Call of Duty Warzone a lot right now. And Mm -hmm. there's a hilarious joke in the meme section going on because all these different characters you can play as, they have these ridiculous things over their eyes, and yet you're playing as the character seeing in clear vision. And so somebody started doing, like, what it would really look like if you were playing in the costumes your guys are wearing. Because, like, my guy's dressed up like Billy from Saw. And it's, like, a full wooden mask over his face, so he shouldn't be able to see anything. So his screen is just black. But, like... Right. Sweatshop actually does that. And it does it in a way that I kind of didn't laugh at. I was like, this is interesting. You're trying a different perspective. You're trying to do something a little different. And I'm like, it's not a joke here. It's actually a stylistic choice that for 2009 and on $7,000 was a little ambitious to try and pull off. So I I did think there were flourishes of that. And listen, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I would love to have a conversation with Ted about this movie and some of the lines in there. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't know what torquing the root means. I've never heard that used as a euphemism. So I would love to know. I would love to know where that was drawn up. And uh, again, it, it leans very heavily into, I think it's trying to leave into the male gaze to comment, mm-hmm. but it becomes very sexually over very much. If you are not into the way characters are talking, you're going to be out on this movie in the first five minutes. So that is where I struggle a little bit, but go ahead, Mike. Yeah. My remembrance of the Q and a of this movie, cause like Ted was actually there. Um, 
talking about this movie because you know, he's New York based, New York Horror mm-hmm. Film Festival. And my understanding is that it originally was sold. The script was like pitched and sold. He was commissioned by Hustler Video to write like a slasher parody porn movie. So the dialogue is basically, you know, and the setups for this are so obvious, like porn setups, you know, like every, there's a fair amount of sex in this movie, which you don't often see in, you know, modern slashers. Um, And I have a whole theory, like we don't see a lot of nudity in horror movies anymore because of the internet. Like you don't need it. Like in the eighties, you got nudity in slashers because it appealed to young men who otherwise like couldn't mm-hmm. see movies. Um, and now you can see them everywhere. Um, but it was like supposed to be a porno is my understanding of it, like a slasher theme porno. And then for whatever reason, like that fell apart. So they're like, let's just make it as a slasher movie. We've already got the script. Like we can do this. So it is like a ridiculously over the top slasher movie. But at the same time, like the women in this movie, you know, it is about the male gaze, but like the women in this movie, like own their sexuality. Like they are out and out saying, yeah, like we're sexual creatures. Like we own it. Um, we own being sexual. I think there's something that's kind of great about that. Cause I still think there's this tendency to like portray women characters that have to be kind of chaste, And there has to be a chase there um, where men can be like very virile and say like, no, like I want, if I want something, I'll take it. There's a kind of like a funny moment in here where like the dude who looks like Ethan Suppley from my name is Earl is having sex with a woman who's just trying to get back at like this other woman and when that other woman like walks away she's like mission accomplished she's like okay i'm done and just gets up and walks away and he's like what and he doesn't call her names he doesn't like start like slut shaming her he's like was it good for you she's like yeah it was good she's like, that's all i needed to hear you know and it was like it's just a funny random weird thing but the woman's like i got what i wanted i don't need you anymore and i'm out the door at that point that's something different than you would typically see in a movie like this where it's all about the dude getting his rocks off. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where I wonder, you know, and I'm sure after listening to this episode, I'm sure Ted will, will correct all of our, mm-hmm. you know, misunderstandings or reinforce all of our assumptions about the film. But it's one of those things that I think it, it's a weird kind of parallel, but I was reading cause I, I subscribed to vanity fair a while back and then I never read them. So they just like kind of pile up in the corner. Right. And every now and then I'm like, I'm going to read the vanity fairs. So I was reading a bio about, uh, Anna, Anya Taylor joy. And within five minutes of just opening up to a random section and starting to read paragraphs, I was like, Oh, this feels like it was written by women because it's not, a, it's not objectifying her. It's not honing in and kind of slightly uncomfortable ways. And like some of the physical characteristics that she has as an actress because she has a very distinct features. She has very distinct eyes. There's a lot of different places that a subpar male writer could kind of like hone in on that and want to frame her celebrity through the way that she looks. And it just doesn't, it doesn't do that. It it talks about her experience with, uh, with beauty, her experience with being attractive, but it doesn't focus on her physicality of it. And I got that vibe while watching sweatshop as I'm like, you know, I don't want to speak too much for where creative lines draw or where people are involved. But But I think you can say there's like, you know, Ted, I think with his film Mohawk was able to portray like, like I think polyamorous relationships or pansexual Mm -hmm. relationships amongst indigenous people in a way that you don't typically see. And it shows that like you can have a person that maybe doesn't have like that culture, but if there's a genuine curiosity and a genuine 
interest in getting it right and doing the work. You know, even in a low budget film like this, like it, something better can come out of it than you typically would find. And I just think too, like the the last moment in this movie is really fascinating because you have this character, this very amoral character that you follow throughout it. And the more you learn about the character that like Ashley Kay plays in it, like she's kind of the one running the rave, but you learn out she's also like pimping out some of the girls as well. You're like, what? Like that's a subplot that just kind of came out of nowhere and doesn't really need to be in here, but okay. Um, at the end of the movie, like the rave is going on the, and it's kind of like a low budget extended version of the rave scene in Freddy versus Jason, where you have this dude just basically like, wailing his way through like a bunch of ravers that have no idea what's going on. And there are some wonderful effects there and she escapes. She manages to lock the killer into the rave, but she also manages to lock every other person in there with him as well. And the last shot is just her standing there looking at the door and you hear all these screams coming from inside. And then she just books it out of there and you're like, what a fucking horrible person, but what a ballsy, awesome way to end a movie. Like, God damn, that's like really mm-hmm. cynical, but also really wonderful. It's the anti-final girl. I mean, that that is the anti-final girl mm-hmm. move where in another horror movie, that is the survivor warrioress at this point, And they would go back in there and this person would face the beast, as you have just described, who is now smashing people over the head with a Mm. hammer and just eviscerating them which very cool shots very cool gore going on because they're not cutting away they are watching these bodies get slammed with a hammer Mm. and however they're doing it it looks pretty good but yeah that i think that runaway moment kind of does describe everyone involved in this movie because from square one you know that these characters are not meant to be liked they are not meant to be sympathized Mm. with empathized with followed anything they are here for fodder they are here to make jokes about snowballing and things of this nature because this is only the second movie to really focus on snowballing (laughs) as as a theme in the script thank you clerks but did not expect it to be here in any case it is a lot of very dumb very uh not nice to each other people will will say getting just pulverized and again, like that, that is that is me yep. just saying it out loud. So anyone listening to this podcast knows the movie they're getting into, because if you don't need any of that other stuff, you're going to look at some really cool indie gore. I, like, seriously, there's there are these. There's a scene and it's the only one that's a little bit tough for me to watch where like the woman who kind of looks like the like classic good girl in a slasher movie that you think like, oh, that's your final girl. Like she's immobile. Cuts off her fingers with like these shears, just hard enough to watch. But then he like smashes her in the back with the anvil, and it's just like it just it. She collapses basically. She becomes a like a flying V guitar basically. It's insane. And later on, they go back to her, and she's trying to crawl away, and it looks like. Her legs look like someone took like a bunch of ground beef and just started to like throw it onto breadsticks. Like it's so grotesque. I can't think of another way to describe it. And she's, it's just like, damn, that is, it's fucked up. Um, Yet it's done in a way where it's like 
fun. And I don't, I don't know a better way to put it. Like, it's just so goofy that it's like fun. The jaw ripping scene in this movie, like it's like pulling Laffy Taffy. And again, for 7,000 bucks, it looks great. It looks better. Like we're doing a rewatch mm-hmm. right now. My wife and I have, I have never finished a series but we're watching Ash versus evil dead, which is a lot of fun. I am having so much fun watching that. Um, the first season again, but like I get pulled out of it so much with the CGI. Like I just get immediately like, Oh, that looks terrible. This to me for like very little money looks better than a lot of like bigger budgeted horror at the time that we're like, all right, all our effects are going to be cheap. uh, Just cheap CGI. Like it just doesn't hold up. Well, we often talk about the show, right? Like we have the thing that's the the monocle movies and Donato movies. There is no world in which Sweatshop is a monocle movie. This is the this is the antithesis of the type of horror that I normally go for. Mm-hmm. And I'm really fucking pissed at Ted right now because I like I walked out of that and it was like everything that I don't like about horror. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, but those kills were pretty yeah. damn good, though, right? And like yeah. you talked to Mike, you mentioned earlier that this was a New York City Horror Film Festival film, like. New York City Horror Film Festival, what is their trailer that the festival trailer they play before every single movie? It's Drowning Pool, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. Like, this is such of a piece with that. It is for, it is a film for the people that go and like write down in journals what cool deaths they saw, right? Like this is, this is the kind of horror, horror movie that not only do people love if they like good kills, but it's the kind of stuff that like, I think of like Anya Stanley's kids, like trying to recreate this in their driveway, right? Mm -hmm. Because she's talked a lot on Twitter about like the special effects gurus that she's raising. This is the kind of thing where like people see it and they're like, I bet I could do that. I bet I could fucking figure out how to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. There's just a, there is a joy of makeup artistry and special, like practical special effects and how you do this again for $7,000 that like I responded to, despite the fact that everything, everything in me, was saying no to this movie when those kills happened. I was like, I can't like, that's, that's good. That's not like good for, it's just good period. You knew that like someone had to build it and someone had to touch it. Like that's Mm -hmm. the thing that always like someone somewhere had to touch this and pull it. And you get that visceral tension of something that's like pulling and snapping. And I think like the spirit of a movie like this lives on, I think with what the folks from like Astron six are doing it is very hard to make a good, silly movie. And I think the folks from Astron 6 do that so well with things like Manborg. Um, PG Psycho Gorman is such a goddamn delight. I mean, it's such a wonderful satire of like the Amblin kids movies from the 80s mixed in with psychobilly trash exploitation fair horror. Um, God, that's like, it's a real treat. It, it really, like a movie like that it's such a treat to have because it's just good, like just dumb fun. And every now and then, like I love a 24. I love Jordan Peele. I, Jennifer Kent should be making like a half dozen movies a year. Like her and Jennifer, uh, her and Karen Kasama should just be like a tag team that makes like incredible horror movies that are just smart and visceral and just give you fodder mm-hmm. to chew on for days on end. But every now and then, man, you just need like, that double stack Wendy's burger of a movie. You just need something to clean the palate out. You need something that's just going to make you go, what the fuck, man? What are you thinking? And to me, that's what this movie, that's what this movie is. 
And I think that there's the thing that I enjoyed about this film is, you know, it made me pay attention to parts of movie making that I normally don't pay attention to. And part of that is because I'm a story guy a lot of times. So like I focus on characters, I focus on dialogue. This is not the type of movie where that's the most important thing. So I'm looking elsewhere, but I found myself really drawn to the editing in this movie, especially because the way, the way that Davidson is the director kind of begins and ends acts of violence, the way that he, that he has, you know, that primary bruiser character start to swing his gigantic, I, I don't know, cudgel. And the way that like they cut scenes together to get that, you know, the implication of violence, it all f- flows really seamlessly. And I think even above like the amazing design, costume design and special effects design, I was really, I was really enamored and really taken by how good, smart editing can cover a multitude of sins when it comes time to, you know, let the bodies hit the floor because they're like, it shouldn't scenes like that. That's like basic filmmaking stuff, right? Somebody swings at something and you cut and you get a reaction shot. Like it's so easy. And because of that, it's so easy to do it poorly. Mm-hmm. And this film does a really good job of like making those little cuts exactly where they need to, to not take you out of the violence that's about to happen to really make it feel like, swing cut explode and you're like oh that felt like one consistent action that felt like one sequence that was just sort of done and recorded from a couple of different angles rather than the low budget thing you know which is like swing and then stop yourself have them hold the thing where it is everybody reset bring in the prop and then keep swinging yep. that's the way you have to do it at this budget but it doesn't feel like that at all in this film yeah it it does feel like more kinetic it does it does mm-hmm. feel like there's a real kineticism to the action here yeah, and to bring up Astron 6 and to bring up the fact that, like, my God, I wish they were still working together. Uh, but at least we are getting Steven Kostansky uh, mm-hmm. making movies like Psycho Gorman. And I think why they are so good, to, at least in my opinion, that is where I think, and I'm not saying it's fact, but I am always going to be drawn to practical effects that are confident. Uh, they don't have to look super realistic. That is not always what I'm looking for. If they do look super realistic, you get bonus points. That's great. But... What I'm drawn to in old school horror is the fact that it's all practical applications and they have to find a way to make the beheading or the dismemberment or the internal organ rip out look real. And mm-hmm. it's not going to look good all the time. And if Astron 6 has taught us anything, though, it's taught us that as long as you're having fun with it, that's what matters most. And I know it's weird to say fun about movies like Sweatshop and things of that nature, but we're here to watch the kills. We are here to watch what your craft house can do to see what that workshop comes up with. And if there's one thing I can leave as my ultimate compliment with this movie is that its effects are very, very confident and they're fine showing them because if you talk about that jaw rip, that doesn't pull away. Can we clearly see that it's mm-hmm. some kind of prosthetic over over their cheeks yes. and extending overwards and something weird is being ripped out from under it? Absolutely. Is it a joy and a pleasure to watch because you are holding on that prosthetic, that effect, and not going anywhere? Absolutely. And that is so the antithesis of what we see often in whether it be a modern horror film that opts for CGI because it is cheaper and quicker. And of course, we're going to meet our deadlines. We're just going to do this in post. We're just going to do it in CGI. It'll look fine. It won't because it never looks as good in CGI and that's just how it is. Or mm-hmm. you get the other effect of, well, we don't really have the budget. So we're just going to give you the tease lead up to the effect, then cut away and spray some blood on the person doing it. But you're not going to get to see anything because we can't pull it off. I, those are the two things where you're going to lose me. You're going to lose me in the sense of I would rather you at least try, at least put something 
on the screen, whether it does look like raw meat or ground beef, as you said before, mm-hmm. slapped on some breadsticks, I would rather see that than you're cutting away right as action is about to happen. And I just watched this movie called Spare Parts, and it is such a, man, it's a halfway concept, and it wants to do Thunderdome in like a junkyard with badass uh, rocker girls. Sounds like my perfect. Oh, that's a fun movie, yeah. It, it is, but here's the thing for me on that movie. It cuts away so often. Yeah. So you've put me in the scenario, but you don't actually want me to watch the action because you can't pull it off. And I'm not saying that to be like, ha, 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 you're doing something you can't do. But at the same time, you need to be able to pull that off if that's the concept you're selling. So I need to see something. I need to be able to see something tangible. And if you are confident to put whatever you can do on screen, great. If it looks like sweatshop especially because there's a lot of stuff in there even just the i think there are some like decapitation-esque things and again the hammer smashing down on someone and just crunching them it is an effect that shouldn't work as well as it should in a seven thousand dollar movie over and over again and to your point that particular the one that you're talking about they do they don't do that as a close-up they do that as a mid-range shot they just basically say here it is you're going to be able to see it in its entirety and if our actors can sell it and if our special effects can sell it it'll work and it does well, let me, uh, we're getting to the part of the show where I think we want to, we want to talk legacy, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, with a lot of the films on Certified Forgotten, the issue is how does it discover an audience? Um, we're always interested, kind of the best way to tell where a film exists in relationship to the horror community is to respond, take, peruse Donato's tweets when he mentions that he's watching the film. Uh, there's an interesting mix of folks that are like, I fucking love this movie. And some of the people that were participating in it that still feel a lot of enthusiasm and energy for it. But Mike, let's start with you. Like, how does a film like Sweatshop, which is is a curio, even among curios, for the budget and for you know the time period that it came out, how how does this and will this ever be able to rise above anything other than like word of mouth, tiny movie, you know, the the eighth film in an eight pack that you get from Walmart, yeah. that kind of a thing. I think it's really hard for a movie. I think what it will be like, because uh, the writer Ted Geigen's gone on to direct some fantastic movies. Like when you watch um, We Are Still Here, which is, it's We We Are Still Here, right? I got that Mm -hmm. right. I get names like that wrong. When you watch like We Are Still Here, like his directorial debut with Barbara Crampton, um, it's incredible. It's such a moving, sensitive picture that still delivers tremendous scares and it's a wonderful portrayal of grief um i think maybe you know it obviously there's a lot of like homage to the changeling in that movie among as well as like it marries like bava and our bava-esque and fulci-esque like weird shit italian horror with stuff like the changeling sensitive fair so it's like it could be a curio to go back for folks that are like what else has he done and then discover something like this where you're like, these are two polar opposites right now. Like, holy cow. And I don't know. Like, I think it's really hard, though. I think outside of that, because there's just so much content that comes out all of the time that sometimes it's kind of hard to go back and discover these like tiny little movies or stuff like this. El Monstro, Del Mar, The Revenant, Must Love Death, which is my other choice to do that like maybe unfortunately don't get the audience that they should have gotten and i hope like people that hear this will go out because you can stream it for free in a couple different sites i think film rise has it streaming right now as well as a couple others um 
it's definitely if you love slasher movies and if you love like 80s inspired slasher movies and if you love like ribald overtly sexual humor like it delivers that in spades as well like it delivers all of those things um i would definitely say seek it out if you're a fan of like low budget horror and a fan of great kills like definitely seek it out Donato, what's your verdict for the future of the film? Yeah, you saying it was a hustler movie before makes things a lot clearer. Uh, definitely the humor they were going for is definitely befitting that crowd. And I, I wish that was actually on the label because that would sell a movie that is way more in line with mm. what expectations are. But I agree. I mean, it's the same conversation we have over and over again. And like Mike mentioning The Revenant, uh, fantastic movie. I love that flick out of New York City. That was such a fun one. Mm-hmm. And... Again, it's a movie that I talk about and no one's seen. And to bring up the same conversation we always have, how does this have a legacy outside the small festivals it plays? Because we are the horror community. We are going to these festivals and I feel like the conversation stays inside with us a lot of the times. I am sure this did not have the most ceremonious release. Uh, It's only $2 on Amazon anyway. That's how I watched it because Ted would would love to give you the 50 cents on that watch or whatever your residuals are on that that Amazon (laughs) watch. But... It's hard. It's hard because I think Sweatshop is very much of a time. I think it's very much of a quote-unquote bygone time uh, at this point. And to get new horror fans to watch something uh, that has, you know, upskirt shots and leering and things of that nature, it's going to be a lot harder. And I say that as someone not who's like, oh, you should like this. This is a thing. Like, horror should be horror because it's unsafe and all these things. Like, no, I, I... you have to watch the horror you're comfortable with and you have to be able to digest what you're seeing. And again, if you are not into the dialogue in the very freaking two minutes or the opening two minutes, you are going to hate this movie. And I feel like now it is going to have so much harder a time to go and say, please go back and watch Ted's first movie or sorry, like, you know, not his first movie, but like something he first worked on and like see young Ted, see early Ted and having, seen we are still here and mohawk it is a very different experience than going watching sweatshop so if you are very much into the idea of no holds bar graphic gross practical effects and i use gross in the most positive connotation that is what sweatshop is for that is what you are watching and you are watching it to really see a practical showcase and i hope you're not too offended by everything else (laughs) yeah yeah, and I'll echo what you both said. I mean, this is for the Ted Gagan auteurists, for the completionists in the audience, for sure. Um, but, you know, we've mentioned this a few times on the show. This feels like a filmmaker's film, right? Like, this feels like something that somebody's going to pick up because they want to make horror movies, not just want to watch or write about horror movies. And, you know, they're, the people involved in this, are their their reputations are enough, and they, they show up at film festivals. They show up at these kind of genre regional film festivals that, that we all cut our teeth on and we still love to this day. It feels like the kind of thing that hopefully somebody will seek it out because they'll want to do exactly as I said, right? Like they'll want to figure out how to replicate this. They'll want to see how somebody made a budget on $7,000 because $7,000 is what they have to make their first feature. So, you know, maybe will this cross over to the mainstream? Will this be something that Shudder puts prominently on the front page of, of their platform? Maybe not, but will somebody in an interview at some point talking about the horror films that inspire them name this one, uh, a, a big name director who you know, cut their teeth on this period of horror. Yeah, for sure. Somebody's going to be like, I saw Sweatshop and I thought I can do that. And that was the beginning of my career. 
that's the kind of that's the kind of film this is. So yeah. maybe that caps the ceiling a little bit, but it's definitely it's going to inspire folks and it's going to show you exactly what you can do if you've got a, just a toolbox full of weird gross tricks up your sleeve and you know a little bit of a, a little bit of willingness to have everybody wear four different hats on the set. Literally the ghouls in the movie, which we can't even begin to describe how many villains there are in this and what's going on in the actual sweatshop. You're in for a ride and just by God, if you can figure it out, God bless you. But to to the saying of many hats, most of the ghouls were the actors and actresses we see on screen just repurposed as ghouls because again, $7,000 and you got to do what you got to do. So the filmmaker point beautiful monocle because i that you said it better in that way and i agree with it 100 percent. saying this is a filmmaker's movie if you want to know how to get into horror and one of those i'm not going to send the sidelines i'm going to diy it i'm going to make the movie i want to make and this is a pretty good testament of like visually how to do that if you can make a movie mm-hmm. with these kind of effects on that kind of budget you're going to go somewhere and any film with the line quote before i go to hell i want to tell you that i love you can't be all bad <laughs> All right, Mike, that is our show. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest this week. Thank you so much for thank the you. heavy conversation in the first half and the considerably lighter conversation yes. in the second half. If people, you've talked about some of the places, the things that you're doing, the, the mm-hmm. podcasts and the stuff that you're participating in, but if people want to go seek it out, what are the handles? Yep. What are the websites? Where should they go? So you can get either of the podcasts I co-host anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, wherever. We're pretty much on every directory. And you can find like the pod and the pendulum we publish every other week um, to give ourselves a little bit of space. Um, And we're entering now, we're going to be starting on the Conjuring films, which I think is going to be a Mm. lot of fun. Got to get those James Wan clicks, baby. Got to get, you know, (laughs) go for what's popular. Um, but yeah, we have no idea. Certified Forgotten has never known how to get clicks for popular movie. Where it's just like it's a, we're we're it's talking about the antithesis. We got nothing. It is the antithesis of that. Psychoanalysis. We're part of the Consequence of Sound podcast network. Um, so you can go to consequenceofsound.net and find us there. They have links to all our shows, or you can just anywhere that you get your podcast, you can find us. Um, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. Um, you can, I also run the pod and the pendulum social accounts, but you can, again, just look that up and find it. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, Mike underscore Snoonian, um, if you do stumble upon the show, um, especially pod and the pendulum, if you listen to it and enjoy it, please give us a rating, give us a review, um, that helps grow what we've done. And it's been kind of fun to watch this little two person project grow into something kind of nice and really enjoyable um but you know drop us a line and let us know what you think donato you can find me matt donato at donato bomb on letterbox twitter and instagram you can see all of my writing on places if you go to my authory which is matt donato as of late i have as i said guested on mike's podcast pod in the pendulum talking about evil dead the remake and why it is one of the greatest remakes we have and possibly the best evil dead movie we have I turned that into an article that hit play disgusting today. So if you would like to write at me and call me a dumb fuck at Donato bomb. And I'll say that was a top five episode for us going back and listening to it. I appreciate that. I, th- I thought it, I thought yeah. it was quite well. Cause I listened to it too. Cause I wanted to listen back. I'm like, man, did I, did I really throw myself to the wolves on this one? And I was like, I did, but I stand by yeah. it all. That's what I respect about you. Donato. 
you you meet the sequels or the remakes where they are, regardless of what that means for your for your mentions for the rest of the week. As for myself, you can find me on Twitter at LabSplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Please follow Certified Forgotten at Certified Forgot on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow the go to our website, CertifiedForgotten.com, where we've got a bunch of new, really good film journalism coming up in the next couple of weeks and a bunch of old stuff for you to enjoy as you dig through the archives. And yeah, you can subscribe to the show. Mike's 100% right. Leaving reviews is the great way to help out for free. It doesn't cost you anything. And it teaches those algorithm gods that ours is something worth seeking out a little bit. So be sure to review all three shows. Check out all three shows and listen to all three shows. Uh, our guest and us, thank you. Mike, it was great to have you on. Um, we're definitely going to have you back sometime soon. You got another movie all ready to go, so mm-hmm. that'll be great. And Donato... Please, uh, please, please send us off the way you want to this week. Something, something nipples. (laughs) Jesus. Uh, We made it to the very end. (laughs) 